Genesis 20 and verse 8, 8 to 18, 20 verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In verse 8, Abimelech arises early in the morning. In Scripture, we'll see that whenever there is a dream of the night, a vision of the night, that those who are eager to obey the vision, the dream, the Word of God, arise early in the morning. We might see another example of that in chapter 22, verse 3. God came to Abraham and spoke a word to Abraham, and then it says in verse 3, 22, 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, so forth. So arising early in the morning to do the will of God is what I think is being indicated here in Genesis chapter 20. So this he does uh, quickly. He announces it to his officials, and they are greatly frightened. They're greatly frightened. Notice that it often takes the judgment of God, the fear of God, to be afraid of the punishment of God to motivate people to action. It often takes this to motivate people to action. They will not be motivated to do the will of God unless you scare them. That's why God says there is a day of judgment. There is hell, hell fire, fire and brimstone, the second death. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Things like that have to be said in order to get the attention of the people to understand how grave is their doom if they don't repent of their sins. If you just say God is a, a, a wonderful grandfather, if you say he's a wonderful man, he's that big man in, in heaven, he's our friend, um, stuff like that. If you use words like that, that does not convey to people what they need to do to obey God. Right. That doesn't do that. And it's wrong because you're not telling them the truth about actual judgment if there is unrepentant sin. Well, in this case, God's threat was understood, taken seriously by Abimelech and his officials. So then, Abimelech seeks to restore Abraham and Sarah, right here in verse 9. He calls to Abraham, What have you done? 
And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So Abimelech, doing it innocently, not knowing, unintentionally, this is how he charges Abraham. Um, Verse 11, Abraham's answer. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, one, on the one hand, interpreters might say, well, Abraham, he has a low estimation of the people around him, and he thinks that he only fears God, or only his household fears God. And Abraham needs to be rebuked because he thinks there's nobody else out there that fears God. Fears God in a general sense, and even fears God in a specific sense in Christ. Okay? But we do know that there are God-fears out there in the world, generally, not in a specific way in the true sense, but in a certain sense, they understand that there is a, a God, and the God is observing their actions, and that God will punish them for their actions, though they don't believe all of this in relation to Jesus Christ. That is true, that, that those kinds of people are there in the world. But that's not enough, we know, Correct. In Abraham's case, he is thinking that the situation in Canaan is so bad, he can't even find someone, or he can't even assume that when he walks to a strange place, goes into a strange place, to a strange city, outside of where he's been living, that he's going to find the king of all people, because kings, they live in want and pleasure, don't they? They do whatever they want. So how am I going to assume that this king of the Philistines he fears God. Right. So I think Abraham had the correct assumption sure. that there aren't God-fears, generally speaking, out there because he knows what just happened in Canaan in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Yeah. That just happened in chapter 19. And he knew from chapter 13, 13, it says, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. He knew from his observation of the people that there's no way that I can correctly assume that there's going to be God-fears there. So that's what he says there. I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place. So there might be people, men, who want to kill my wife and take her for for themselves. Then in verse 12, he says that there is a partial truth in this, that she is the daughter of my father, the daughter of my father. Verse 13, however, notice verse 13, another very critical verse, important verse here. And it came about, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her. Now, when did God cause him to wander? That would have been from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? So this would have been at least when he was 75 years old, likely when he was earlier, um, younger than age 75, but at least by that age. So, and or he lived there, was raised, born and raised there. He went to live in another place called Haran, lived there a few years, and then came to Canaan when he was 75. Right. Okay, so at that time when God saved him and God called him to wander from his father's house, he had this agreement with Sarah. This must have meant that even in Babylon, and even in Haran, and in Canaan, 
After his conversion, he saw, this is how people, how wicked people really are. He used to be that way, and then he saw how people were so wicked, and he had to be extremely cautious wherever he went. So, in his estimation, this is the promise that they have toward one another. It's toward one another. It's not just Abraham to Sarah, but also Sarah to Abraham, to one another. It says that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So she's supposed to say, like she did earlier in this chapter, he is my brother, and then he will say, she is my sister. So if we interpret this as blameworthy, we have to blame both Abraham and Sarah. No doubt. Abraham and Sarah, not just Abraham. And those blamers are prone to just blame Abraham, and they never mention Sarah. But I think that this is not blameworthy, and we'll come to why I don't think so. Um, actually, let's explore that right now. Why is this not blameworthy? Well, according to the context, like I showed you, God does not blame Abraham and Sarah whatsoever. He does not blame them whatsoever. He does blame Abimelech and stop him from sinning further, right? He does do so. And he assumes the righteousness, the prayerful prophet Abraham in chapter 20, verse 7. Correct? He assumes that. So it's only a godly or prayerful prophet who's going to be able to have his prayers answered. Furthermore, though, we read Romans 4, 18 to 22, correct? Which shows that he did not waver in unbelief. If there were to be an example of him wavering in unbelief, this would be the example that many people would use, right? Right? If there's an example of Abraham wavering in unbelief, they would use chapter 12 as an example and chapter 20 among other incidents. They would use these as Severe examples of him wavering in unbelief. However, the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 4, 18 and 22, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Correct? Okay. Then, then the question arises, is it okay to speak a word or something that's untrue in order to avert physical danger or in order to avert being put to death? Is it okay to do that? Is it okay to speak a word to whoever who might threaten the death? Is it okay to speak a word to that person in order to avert physical death, innocent physical death? We're not talking about execution of a criminal or the government going through the courts and executing a criminal. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when somebody is attempting to put an innocent person to death. Well, let's look at a couple of examples of this. One is Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. This is Israel, the nation in Egypt. Remember the Pharaoh at the time... Exodus 1.15, the Pharaoh at the time 
He is afraid of the, the numbers of the people of Israel, especially the males, the, because the males could be um, warriors and they could rebel against Egypt and revolt and then leave the land. So he's afraid of that and he wants the men or the boys, the newborn boys, to be thrown into the Nile. Right? Okay. We come to 115. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua, and said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Verse 20. So, so, or therefore... So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God. And how did they show their fear of God? By not doing what Pharaoh said. By not doing what Pharaoh said and even telling Pharaoh that the Hebrew, mid, or the Hebrew wives are very vigorous and we can't get to them before they give birth. It includes all that, right? It has to, that's in the context. It has to include all that. And it came out because the Hebrew, uh, the midwives fear God, that he established households for them. Households for them. Yeah. Okay. Another example is Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah lives in a time where the Babylonians are going to invade the land. They have been invading and threatening. And Zechariah, the last king, not Zechariah the prophet, but Zechariah, the last king of Judah, he is king, and he's an evil king, and he does not want to listen to the words of Jeremiah the prophet. However, he has moments of doubt, and so he calls for a private consultation with Jeremiah the prophet. So evil king Zedekiah, private consultation with Jeremiah, Jeremiah are you really telling us the word of the Lord that we should just concede and obey the Babylonians and not resist them? Is this really what we should do? Because I really don't want to do that. I want to resist them. Okay? So they have this private consultation between Jeremiah the prophet and Zechariah, the king of Judah, the evil king of Judah. Uh, Zedekiah. Sorry, Zedekiah. And verse 24, Zedekiah says... Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no man know about these words, and you will not die. Right. Jeremiah told him the truth. Everything he had been saying, he repeated it again to Zedekiah. Right. So Zedekiah tells Jer Jeremiah, Let no man know about these words, and you will not die. But if the officials hear that I have talked with you, and come to you and say to you, Tell us now what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. 
Then you are to say to them, Zedekiah the king still saying, then you are to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. This is what Zedekiah tells Jeremiah he needs to tell the officials. Tell them that, but don't tell them anything else about concessions to the Babylonians. Just give up and stop resisting and all of that. Don't tell them anything because that's what Jeremiah was preaching all this while. 27. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. So he reported to them in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded. All these words which the king had commanded and they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. Since the conversation had not been overheard, they quit asking Jeremiah, and was there anything more? And was there anything more? Anything else? Anything else? Because the main reason that Jeremiah went was not this petition. The main reason was to continue preaching his same message, which the officials hated Jeremiah for that. They wanted to kill Jeremiah for that. So Jeremiah told did not tell them what his consistent message was. He didn't say anything about that to the officials. And since they didn't overhear anything and suspect him saying more, verse 28, so Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. So Jeremiah didn't tell the truth to those officials. If he had told the truth to the officials, the officials would have sought to put him to death. Is that another example not? Uh, is that not another example of saying something that needs to be said in order to prevent being put to death? If they had put Jeremiah to death, that would have been innocent human death. If they had put the babies to death, it would have been putting innocent humans to death in Exodus chapter 1. So they, did, they said what they needed to say to avert putting innocent human life to death. And... According to my interpretation, I believe that's what's happening in Ex- uh, or Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 12, and even in Genesis chapter 26 when Isaac does the same. Isaac does the same in Genesis 26 about his wife. It does, but I still don't think I like it much. It's hard to swallow, but go ahead. Then verse 14. Verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are clear. Here Abimelech manifests a kind of civil righteousness or civil repentance before all people, remember, if he's an unbeliever, he is repenting in some way, but not in a full and complete way as faith in Christ would call for it. Because he would do so in the sense of before God for his salvation and forgiveness of sins, eternal life. But he's at least doing it in the civil and societal way before all men. He says, before all who are with you and before all men you are clear. So now everybody knows that I am innocent 
and everything is settled and we've restored everything. This is what should happen in, in society. It should happen in society when we have to have civic repentance and spiritual repentance. Spiritual repentance in the local church, but even civic repentance. If somebody is a thief, then he needs to restore what he stole and not do it again and show by his actions that he won't, is not doing it again and that he has remorse or sorrow over what he stole. Right. He needs to prove that to the judge. He needs to prove that to his family. He needs to prove that to all the neighbors and everything. It needs to be done, that just like Abimelech did. And this, especially the same thing needs to happen in the local church when we're talking about spiritual, true, eternal life giving repentance. It has to be manifested, otherwise it's a sham repentance. Okay. If people don't truly repent in the local church, then they're just pretending. Verses 17 and 18, that everything ended happily is mentioned here in 17. Abraham prayed to God, God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. So everyone wants to have a wife and a family and children, everybody who's thinking straight, right? They want to be married, raise a family, live a, a, a quiet, peaceful, happy life, raise their children in, in, the, in the ways of um, having health and a, a sufficient life, a lifestyle and continue on to the next generation. And this is what God did. God gave it to them because previously the wombs were closed, verse 18 says, for the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. They had been closed because of God's punishment and that, that was temporary punishment and waiting to see how Abimelech would eventually act. Because in the meantime, there was barrenness among all the women. And eventually, the whole household would have been killed if they did not repent in this way. I said that people in the world, they know that men should marry women and have families, bear children, keep house, and things like that, right? They know that. They typically know that. It takes somebody who's evil and malicious to repeatedly teach a, a, a boy or a girl that marriage is wrong and evil. Don't get married. Don't get married. And if you have to get married, wait until you're 30 or 40 years old. And then, if you do get married, don't have any children. But then, if your wife can't resist or if an accident happens, then, okay, one is okay. Or maybe two, but don't have any more because it's not good to have a family. Humans are evil uh, because they destroy the planet. They destroy the trees. They destroy the animals. Uh, right? This is what people think. They, they think this way. But the church should never think this way. Amen. They should know that being married and having a family and raising a godly family is what God expects. How do we know so? 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. two eight. We'll start at 8. Two eight. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands 
without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. Men ought to pray without quarreling and fighting uh, with holy hands. And women ought to dress modestly. And the, the good works are what should uh, be the things with which they clothe themselves. Good works should adorn them or clothe them not this focus on, on, their, on their clothing and jewelry. And then women should remain quiet. And verse 15, bear children and continue in faith, love, sanctification with self-restraint. Chapter 5, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. In this chapter, younger widows are taught to do the following. Younger widows in chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, 14. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Younger widows, and he described their sins in verses 11 to 13, in which they were... Gossips and busybodies, causing problems, meddling in other people's affairs. They were doing things like this, going from house to house like that. And so they were troublemakers because they had nothing to do. Right? So instead of having nothing to do, remarry, bear children, keep uh, watch over those children properly, don't neglect them, keep house, that means... Mind the matters of the house, inside the house, take care of the house properly, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Don't let people in the world accuse us of being false Christians because they see the way our young women are behaving. Don't let that happen. And notice this is so serious that if they don't behave this way, in this godly way, they follow Satan. And no Satan follower goes to heaven. Right. They don't go to heaven. And finally, Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, Titus 2, verse 1. Titus 2, 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Sound doctrine. Notice, the pastor is supposed to preach sound doctrine, and the sound doctrine, in this case, he does not have in mind theological doctrine. 
He's not talking about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation. He's not speaking of those kinds of theological doctrines. Here he's speaking of ethical doctrines, how our life should be, correct? And the older men, temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. And this is to be a model to the younger men, which are mentioned in 6 to 8. Then the older women and younger women in verses 3 to 5. Reverent, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. What? Teaching whom? It says in verse 4, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Therefore, if Abimelech and his household can understand that, why can't we understand it in the Christian church? The Christian church should understand it and be a model and teach the world to be it even better than they are. Because there's a lot of sin in the world and there's a lot of sin in the church. So may the true Christian church rise up and teach these things and give up their own sin in their own families and lives so that they can do so in their own families. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.